0: Welcome to London Lopate at Large. I'm London Lopate. The great thinkers of the past have become so much a part of our received culture, we can forget that they were often confronted by fierce opposition and sometimes risked their lives to have their ideas or, or discoveries accepted. In his latest book, The Workshop and the World, philosopher and science historian Robert P. Kreese has written about 10 key thinkers throughout history who have come to shape public perception of science and the role of authority. His book is published by W.W. Norton, and it brings Professor Kreese to our show now. Welcome.
1: Thank you very much, Leonard. Thanks for inviting me.
0: And uh, this is a very diverse group, these 10 thinkers, uh, Francis Bacon, Galileo Galilei, Rene Descartes. Giambattista Vico, Mary Shelley, August Comte, Max Weber, Kamal Ataturk, Edmund Husserl, and Hannah Arendt. Uh, th- we're talking about a mix of scientists, philosophers, politicians, sociologists, and novelists. What what do they have in common?
1: Well, science denial is a is an international problem, and uh, what I thought I'd do is I mean science science denial is an urgent problem nowadays. I mean, it's uh, science denial, uh, denying s- climate change, for instance, is like uh, shouting, uh, stay put in a burning building. You know, keep keep shopping in, in a burning building. And what I thought I'd do is go back to the uh, people who, f- to the beginning of uh, the Western scientific tradition and see what, um, uh, went uh, to the beginnings of modern science, and see how these originators argued for the authority of science what problems that they encountered, what resistance they encountered, and how they coped with that resistance. And I hoped that by, uh, by doing that, I could find clues as to how to deal with science denial nowadays. I mean, I'm a historian. I think the past hmm. is important. It's more important than the present because uh, we just repeat the past and we do it badly.
0: And we'll get to that. You, you devote your introduction, actually, not to any of those ten great minds, but to the impact of climate change on Mer de Glace, the, the longest glacier in France. Uh, because uh, b- hasn't that been melting for quite a while?
1: Oh, yes. I mean, uh, well, it, it, it's, it's sort of what inspired me to write the book. That is, you know, the Mer de Glace is uh, very famous. It was uh, one of the biggest tourist attractions in Europe um, uh, at the time, 18th century, 19th century. Um, it, it painted it, by some of the most famous painters, uh, painted and by written painters. about by famous writers. Yeah, I mean the the key scene in Frankenstein when the, the doctor meets his creation happens on the Mare de Glace. Mary Shelley visited it, so I went to um, visit it a few summers ago, and they Mary Shelley could walk right out on the glacier, as did all the tourists then, and uh, I, I looked, and at the, the point where she could walk out, there was no glacier, and you had to walk down a path, and along the path, um, the uh, glaciologist had marked the level of the glacier each year, and it was terrifying. By the time you get to the bottom, you know, this, this, the valley is half a mile across, and it's half a mile deep, and it's uh, it, it, to to walk down to the bottom and see no glacier at the bottom was a frightening experience. With these
0: signs that say the glacier used to be at this level in 1965,
1: right? 19. I think the first one is 1820, which uh-huh. is about the time Mary Shelley did. Then you walk down. There's 1890. Then there's there's 1910 and so forth. And by that, the last one is 2015, and that was still hundred or so feet above the level of the of the glacier.
0: I'm assuming that the uh, the people who have uh, made a living from the glacier are freaking out.
1: Well uh, that that's a good point. Glaciers are one of the main sources of water in many parts of the world, uh, sometimes drinking water, but also for agriculture and so forth. I mean a major, major source. so the vanishing of glaciers um, will be is going to be a major loss for the planet.
0: Did you just go there because you were uh, being a tourist or had you already? Uh, the idea for this book in mind?
1: Well, I was, I was contemplating the book, and I had heard about the glaciers. It was a combination of curiosity and so forth. But by the time I, I got to the bottom, I knew I had to write this book.
0: One of the questions you ask here is, when does a scientific discovery become accepted fact? Many politicians and government officials have accused today's scientists of, of dishonesty, conspiracy, and hoaxes. Is global warming just the latest example of something that we've been seeing throughout history?
1: Well, uh, what do you mean? The denial of, yeah. uh, of scientific authority? Well, that, that's an interesting question because from the beginning, there were people who did not accept the authority of science. I mean, already the Galileo's uh, interrogators, Galileo's uh, uh, the the people against whom Galileo was was arguing, but it's different in the past few years. What's different is that you know in previous administrations, politicians could deny uh, could could um, de- deny science or, or not take scientific findings um, seriously, um, but they were sheepish about it. I mean George Bush was a little bit sheepish about not following the 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 uh, Kyoto Accords and so forth. But what's different nowadays is that politicians are proud of it. I mean, well, that's, Jim that's, Imhoff
0: uh, oh has God. been ridiculed for that snowball incident, but uh, I th- he's probably very proud of it.
1: He's very proud of it. Trump is obviously very proud of it. The um, the governor of uh, Louisiana, um, whose name I forgot, the former governor of, of Louisiana was going to build a berm to stop—Jindal was going to build a berm to stop oil from, uh, from uh, encroaching on the, on the beaches. Scientists told him it was, um, th- that that was going to fail, but he did it anyway, and he was proud of the fact that he was rejecting the words of the scientists, and he compared himself to Huey Long. So he, it, you know, it's a populist thing nowadays to reject the authority of, of scientists, and I think that's new.
0: After the 2009 United Nations Climate Change Conference in Copenhagen, Sarah Palin tweeted—I uh, can't quote the, the tweet as a tweet because <laughs> it's, uh, it's filled with uh, uh, lowercase and numbers and stuff, but it's arrogant and naive to say man overpowers nature.
1: Right. Well, the, the point of the book was what I discovered was that science denial takes many different forms. Uh, I mean, uh, there, there are, um, you know, you have to distinguish between anti-science, pseudoscience, skepticism, and science denial. Mm-hmm. Anti-science is if you, um, uh, uh, you know, suppose you went to a doctor and the doctor uh, told you you had a certain serious illness, you needed a medicine, um, and you said, oh, I don't trust the medicine establishment, I'm not going to take it. That's anti-science. That's that's suspecting the entire establishment. Then there's pseudoscience. Suppose you do the same thing, and you say to the doctor, "I'm not taking that. I heard about something, some other thing that's not scientifically accepted, but uh, uh, but it's supposed to be. It, um, I've seen ads for it. That's pseudoscience. Skepticism is if you do research and you discover that there are other things, but that th- there you're being, you're doing your own research. Science denial is rejecting a particular fact." but accepting others so uh, you, you could uh, you know people uh, people who uh, science deniers who reject global warming say we'll look at uh, weathercom to decide what to wear mm-hmm. or people who 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 um, who refuse certain vaccines will will still go to doctors for other things so just getting back to your question um, wh- what I found was that there were several different ways of uh, l- uh, several distant uh, possible justifications for rejecting uh, science. And one of them is that, that it, it uh, I, 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 I came across six, and one of them is the one that you mentioned, which is that it runs against your values, it runs against your religious commitments. And that Palin does, I mean, Rush Limbaugh had a similar thing, he said, God will not let the, the planet um, <laughs> you know, be destroyed. Uh, evolutionists do the same thing as well, too. No, so added
0: to that is sometimes even uh, great scientists have made mistakes.
1: Well, yes, that, that's the thing. None uh, you know, science is fallible. But that's one of the things that makes it strong. Uh, it's always revisable in the, the light of new evidence, new theories. Um, so that's what um, yeah, uh, th- there are, but distinguishing whether re- uh, distinguishing whether you're rejecting science because, you, you really think scientists have a mistake, or whether it confronts your political, economic, religious interests, that's another thing.
0: At a time when the Catholic Church had assumed total authority, Francis Bacon, Galileo Galilei, and Rene Descartes were the first to articulate the worldly authority of science. Uh, they were challenging religious beliefs and church authority with their ideas, uh, uh, and that put them in danger?
1: Uh, oh yeah, well Galileo was, was imprisoned. Um, Bacon too was imprisoned, although not particularly. Big- he had pissed a lot of people off, and he wasn't. He was imprisoned in the Tower of London for a few days. That wasn't specifically mm. for his uh, scientific views, although those were what. Um, Descartes died
0: in, in house under house arrest, didn't he?
1: Uh, no, not Descartes. De- Galileo. Galileo. Did. Galileo. Um, Descartes was uh, effectively uh, exiled. He went to different, mm. uh, very different countries. wound up dying in Sweden. Um, but your your remark about uh, Galileo. Let me just talk about Galileo for a minute. Um, Galileo was incredibly clever and very witty. He was a great writer. I mean, it, the Italian novelist Italo Cavino called him the uh, the best writer in the Italian language, hmm. and he was very. I mean, that's one of the things why I I'll wrote have to the
0: take Calvino's word for it because I don't read Italian, but I have read well, Galileo and Calvino good. in English. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well, what Galileo did, and this is a lesson for nowadays, was that he um, he he turned the um, beliefs of his accusers against him. That is, his uh, he was being accused of um, heresy, of uh, of speaking against the religious tradition, and he would go through, and you know, he went right back at them. He would go through religious texts and quote people like Tertullian and Augustine and, and Aquinas to the effect that studying science is a worthwhile thing because God actually created nature. So one yeah. of one of his wittiest comments was uh, he said uh, uh, the Bible uh, teaches us how to go to heaven, not how heaven goes. Uh-huh. And what I imagine is that we could do that nowadays to... Uh, of turn around the beliefs, the values of, of science deniers against them. So I imagine us saying something like, uh, the founding fathers told us to create legislation, not to legislate creation. <laughs> so it's it's that kind of turning around of, of value, showing that science deniers betray their own values, which is one of the lessons that we can learn from people like Galileo.
0: But uh, religion may not be Th- a major issue in the uh, case of global warming, although I suspect sometimes it pops up. Uh, does that make today's process of denial much different? Than oh, yes.
1: Uh, e- absolutely. That That's a really good point, is that in Galileo's day, the, the principal uh, driver for f- uh, science denial was theology. It was the church. Um, nowadays, it comes in very different... Nowadays, as you said, it's less so, but it comes in There are other factors. There are other drivers. These include, you know, economic interests, political interests, buying votes. Um, And as I said before, it was um, it's uh, rejecting the scientific establishment has become something of a um, a uh, you know sign of populism, a sign of.
0: um Well, I've I've spoken to uh, on this show uh, a climate scientist. Who reported that a number of her colleagues have received death threats?
1: Yeah, well, it's
0: it's um, so that that the, that makes them uh, that gives them something in common with some of the people you're writing about here.
1: Yeah, no, that that's true. Is that do you suppose they're serious death threats or are they they kind well, of well,
0: you know, with threats? the. With the internet, you never know. But yeah. uh, you, there are crazy people out there who get out, who are outraged and say, "We're going to get you."
1: Yeah, I got some hate mail for that. Uh, this book, people accuse me of being part of a conspiracy. Um, even from uh, religious writers, there's that, the the that that picture in the uh, Galileo book of Saint Paul. Uh, yeah, I was going to get to that. Okay, I'll let you get to that. <laughs>
0: What I want to do right now is to inform my listeners that you're, they're listening to Leonard Lopez at Large on WBAAI, New York, 99.5 FM. And my guest is Robert P. Crease, who is a professor in the Department of Philosophy at Stony Brook University and uh, the author of a number of books. The latest, the one that we're discussing, The Workshop in the World, what Ten Thinkers Can Teach Us About Science and Authority," and it is published by Norton. So let's get to that, uh, that painting. Uh, in your discussion of Descartes, you describe a painting at the Louvre, a uh, 1649 work by Ustache le Yeah, I, you know. it, I, I've looked at the painting. It's pretty competent, but I, I, he's not one of the, the, the artists that most people remember from that time. Uh, the painting is called "The Preaching of Saint Paul at Ephesus," um, and that was a painting that was uh, critical of Descartes.
1: Uh, Galileo. It oh, was, Galileo! I'm sorry. Yeah, uh, Lescure was a um, was a Counter-Reformation pa- painter. That is, he was uh, the Catholic Church paid him to to uh, make uh, paintings about contemporary religious issues, and he was he painted that in in 1649 which is just a few years after Galileo died. And it, first of all, it's a really imposing painting. If you go to the Louvre, you have to see it. It's 13 feet high, mm-hmm. uh, really, really imposing. You know, dwarfs, uh, dwarfs you. Um, and it shows St. Paul with one hand raised, the other clutching the scripture. Um, and before him, at his feet, there are people burning books. Now, if you look very, very carefully.
0: This painting is promoting book burning.
1: Way, uh, something even more specific. If you look very carefully at the books, there are mathematical figures on the pages and this is an obvious reference to Galileo's statement that the Book of Nature is written in mathematical figures. So, uh, I mean, what Galileo argued is that there are two books. There's the Book of Scripture and there's the Book of Nature. The Book of Scripture is kind of a handbook for uh, it's, it's to tell you how to go to heaven the Book of Nature is how, how nature works, and it's written in mathematical figures. So here you have this painting where Paul is holding the book, and, and uh, people are burning uh, the Book of Nature, uh, the, uh, books with um, mathematical figures on them. That's a clear sign of, uh, of an anti-Galileo. Uh, um, uh, it, it, it's anti-Galileo. And what um, the hate mail was, People wrote me and said, um, "That's obviously you're in an anti-Pauline conspiracy. That's obviously a, rec- a reference to Acts uh, nineteen nineteen, where the um, Saint Paul preached and people brought books to to burn. Um, so it's not about Galileo at all, at all. But that's ridiculous because you you wouldn't go to create such a huge painting about one line in Scripture unless it referred to." A contemporary view. I mean, so people
0: at the time would have understood what the painting was about,
1: right? Just as you know, if uh, Arthur Miller in 1953, when he wrote *The Crucible*, he didn't write it because he was interested in Salem witchcraft Hmm. trials. He wrote it because he was uh, he was addressing a contemporary uh, American phenomenon that is the the persecution of. uh, of leftists, of so-called communist government. McCarthyism, right. And this was written, as I said, 1649, so just uh, what, seven years after Galileo uh, died, but when his views were beginning to become um, uh, well-known.
0: How long before Galileo's ideas came to be accepted?
1: Well, it was a long, slow process. I mean, all of these these people, Bacon, Descartes, uh, Galileo, um, their arguments for the authority of science didn't work immediately, but it, they took place over time. I mean, take Bacon, for instance. Bacon painted a picture of um, what a scientific community, what a community would look like that was organized optimally to, to um, promote science and technology for the benefit of citizens. He published that in uh, 16, well, that was, he, it was posthumous, but it, he wrote it about 1624. It didn't work immediately, but by the end of that century, by the end of the seventeenth century, th- uh, uh, governments were beginning to uh, support scientists and create laboratories on a systematic basis. The Royal Society was founded uh, on the pattern of of Bacon's book.
0: Because uh, there is there was another source of authority uh, beyond religion, uh, and that was the state.
1: Right. It's um, the state, uh, the in Galileo's time, for instance, there were two principal sources of authority. The church, which held the authority over, s- over spiritual matters. The state, which uh, claimed authority over secular matters. And what uh, Bacon, Galileo, Descartes were arguing was that, wait a minute, there's a third kind of authority as well, too. The kind of authority of uh, findings of nature as uh, investigated by scientists.
0: Isn't it a matter of historical significance that men like Bacon, Galileo, and Descartes ultimately came out the winners uh, of the debate in each case and established the, the proper authority of science? Or, um, as you point out, when people write you hate mail based on interpretation of of Paul St. Paul, uh, it still hasn't been resolved?
1: Well, I think— uh, Nowadays, we're at a particular juncture that we're, I mean, in those days, uh, the authority of science was uh, important for certain aspects of science policy, but now it's basically an existential issue. It has to do with do we survive global warming? It has to do with do we survive uh, plagues and pandemics? Uh, It has to do with uh, do we survive, can we predict and account for rising sea levels and the kind of impact they have on the environment? So I think it's a kind of it's uh, we're in a different sit- situation than than we were four hundred years ago well
0: we've been hearing a lot of anti science rhetoric recently is the authority of science dwindling or does it only come under attack when it proposes something that some people find inconvenient
1: well th- that's an interesting point it's um it's uh a- a- it, it comes under attack when it uh, science denial as opposed to anti science or pseudoscience comes uh is, is a matter of um, denying science findings that, that contradicts one's uh, specific interests of, of one sort or another. And as I said, it's much, more, um, it's much more aggressive nowadays because the stakes are higher. The economic, financial, political stakes are higher.
0: You say the dwindling authority of science threatens human life. So how can we ignore the influence of, of politics, bias, and greed in a discussion like this?
1: That's a good question. Somehow, certain people manage to do it.
0: Well, we have – I mentioned uh, Senator uh, Jim Imhop, but we have the Koch brothers and others who um, have invested in denying the science. You noted that when Senator Mitch McConnell was asked in 2014 about whether climate change is a real problem, he replied, I am not a scientist. I'm interested in protecting Kentucky's
1: economy. That's right. There are – you know, there's a – One of the most effective ways to combat science denial is through comedy. Uh, Comedy comedians have a wonderful license for being able to cut through uh, justifications and posturing, and being able to to bring real motives to light. And uh, one of my favorite Doonesbury cartoons shows actually, you know, a radio talk show host, and he invites what he calls an honest science denier uh, to come speak. And the science denier said, "Wait, I don't." I don't challenge the science. The science is is wonderful. I deny. Uh, I don't care about global warming because it conflicts with my short term economic mm-hmm. interests. So you know that it's that ability of comedians to cut through the heart of things, which is one of the reasons why the uh, the uh, Daily Show is ranked um, uh, uh, more trustworthy than the the economists Say mm. Stephen um, Colbert and Seth right. Meyers uh, making become major of
0: sources of of uh, real. Uh, the debate uh, over political things.
1: Right, because they can cut through. They don't care about political correctness they can, or offending anybody. They can, they can um, uh, bring the, the... They can demonstrate the, uh, uh, the... get to the core of what's going on.
0: But uh, some of the people we're talking about do deny the science. They just simply say, you know, there's always been ebbs and flows. Oh, there have been ice ages and then warming periods... And we're just going through one of the many cycles.
1: Well, the question is, where do you go from there? If you really, uh, I- if if you really don't um, don't buy it, then you investigate. You you look at how the scientists came to the conclusions they did, and so forth. But if you don't care about it and you're just posturing, then you um, then then you just you, you you halt there. The question is what the 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 real. Uh, uh, real litmus test for science denial is, is, is um, whether you investigate afterwards.
0: Well, for example, the uh, global warming denial isn't just happening in the United States. This past Sunday on 60 Minutes, the, the TV news show, uh, they aired a report on the devastating fires in Australia. And Malcolm Turnbull talked about how he lost his job as the country's prime minister in part because his own party – oppose his plans to do more to reduce greenhouse gas emissions.
1: Yeah, it's an international problem. And I I should say it's not just an international issue. It's also a bipartisan issue. I mean, there are people on the left and right, Republicans and Democrats, who have uh, engaged in science denial. Remember Dennis Kucinich? Do you remember Dennis Kucinich? A congressman from Ohio. Wanted to uh, introduce a a bill to label all cell phones with uh, the statement that they're po- they possibly cause cancer, against scientific uh, they findings. They don't. <laughs> 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 I sure hope they don't.
0: <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, just watching people on the subway. <laughs> 90% uh, of the people on the subway have their cell phones out. Put it this you way. Think if uh, yeah, if everybody if was coming down with the cancer.
1: Yeah, if, they c- if cell phones caused cancer, there would be an <laughs> epidemic right now.
0: In fact, I think cancer rates are down slightly.
1: Huh. But so maybe they're a cure.
0: The Murdoch newspapers in Australia have claimed that the fires are the result of arson. They had nothing to do with global
1: warming. Well, see, there you go. The question is, as I said, the question is, where do you go from here? Do you begin to investigate arson, and if so, what do you find? Or, or is it just a statement to defer uh, paying any attention to it at all?
0: You say in discussing climate change in ours, uh, they are, quote, exploiting real vulnerabilities in science itself because of uh, what you call a philosophical quandary. How can we reconcile the fact that science can be intellectually abstract is necessarily uncertain and opaque to the non-scientists' experiential grasp of the world.
1: Yeah, what's interesting was, again, what I found by going back to the founders, um, was that there are uh, the same things that makes the same features that make science work also make it seemingly vulnerable to denial. So it's sort of like Facebook. You know how what we love about Facebook is, you know, it shares and connects. That both is really, really wonderful, but it also leads to uh, f- uh, the the fomenting of hate groups, of passing of misinformation, uh, and uh, and so forth. So, and, so and th- a lot, a lot of
0: annoying stuff about so and so is at so, at Niagara Falls with uh, some friend. Yeah, <laughs> right. <get> all, <laughs> who cares? How many things do I have to delete in a typical mm-hmm. day? But that's another problem.
1: Yeah. Well. Uh, but in, in the case of science, there the, the, the features that make it go are, one, it's technical and abstract. That's Descartes' point. It's, it's fallible, meaning that, you, um, that uh, it's always open to revision. It's done in institutions. Um, but all of these things provide seeming legitimacy for, deni- for denying it. So the, the fact that it's uh, abstract, for instance, that's what, that, that's what uh, McConnell was appealing to. That's, that's the, what I call the, um, the I am not a scientist objection. But because and you say I th- can't understand it, that means I don't have to pay attention to it, even when it has to do with Kentucky's economy.
0: And you say that the technical aspect of science, interpreting data, demands expertise, but can make science seem remote and abstract. Uh, science's fallibility, which allows revision on the basis of new information, also
1: can lead it sideline because uh, people can say, well, the jury's still out. Yeah, exactly. That's that's another version, which is what I call the jury is still out uh, objection. People have, uh, um, well, are... are uh, once upon a time, EPA head Scott Pruitt said, well, global warming, you know, who knows, the, the jury is still out, scientists may change their minds, and who knows whether it might not actually be good by the year 2100. So uh, that's, uh, th- that's another possible um, uh, objection. It's
0: interesting that we talk about this in, in partisan terms. The, the president who gave us the EPA was Richard Nixon. He also gave us the Clean Water Act, the Clean Air Act. Among other things, and then the first president to try to undermine it was Ronald Reagan. Yeah, of the same party.
1: Uh, and, politics. Well, but but let me point and, out. And do
0: you know who he named before there was a Scott Pruitt? You know who he named to head the EPA and wow. to to bring it to Ann Gorsuch, the mother of <laughs> the uh, one of the new Supreme Court justices.
1: Yeah, and she uh, was
0: found in contempt of
1: Congress. James James Watt was that his name? Uh
0: she, there was a James Watt as well.
1: Right. Yeah. And didn't he say it uh little point in paying attention to the environment because uh, the, of the second coming? Yes. I uh,
0: Another recent uh, example uh, uh of what we're talking about is the challenge made by the Trump administration to the Iran nuclear deal that was hammered out by scientists.
1: Yeah, I know. I mean, I can't not trust a, those scientists. I'm not a Right. I'm I'm not a nuclear expert, so I can't comment on that. But uh, as I say, I'm much better on the past than the present.
0: <laughs> You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM. We are listener-sponsored and uh, listener-supported radio. A little bit of Frankenstein. We'll be talking about Mary Shelley in a few moments with my guest, Robert P. Kreese, whose uh, latest book is called The Workshop and the World, What 10 Thinkers Can Teach Us About Science and Authority. And those 10 thinkers are Francis Bacon, Galileo Galilei, René Descartes, Giambattista Vico, Mary Shelley, Auguste Comte, Max Weber, Kamal Ataturk, interesting, Uh, Edmund Husserl and Hannah Arendt and uh, we just need to take a few moments to discuss something else uh, less scientific but (laughs) equally demanding Uh, I'm joined now by my executive producer Jesse Lent and Jesse we are in the third week of our winter fun drive And uh, we have some exciting news.
2: Yes, I can see you're so excited. You just about jumped out of your chair there. My chair (laughs) got moved away. (laughs) (laughs) Hello, Leonard. Hello, everyone. Yes, we are in the third week of the fun drive, uh, the doldrum, so to speak. However, I have a really exciting announcement today. This is a first on Leonard Lopate at Large. We have a listener, uh, one of our longtime listeners, Ken Coglin, who's offered to match the next thousand dollars that we make in listener contributions. So again, this is for. Any amount of contribution that you make right now, just today— So if
0: you call in for t- and, and give us $10, we get $20. We get
2: $20. I $100, mean, we get $200. And think about it. Up to dollars $50 might not seem like a lot of money, but $100 really helps us, to be honest. $50 helps us, but $100 really helps us. So— if you were planning on donating at any point during this drive, now is the time. Today, make your money count. Double that money. And in order to do that, you can do it one of two ways. You can call our pledge line at 516-620-3602. Again, since you might not have had a pen out, let me give you those numbers again, 516 516- That's the pledge line. Or you can donate online on our website, give to WBAI.org. That's give to WBAI. Give them the number to WBAI.org. And again, thank you so much to listener Ken Coglin, who has offered to match any donation that we get today up to $1,000. I'm I'm told that we actually got $100 so far, so that means there is a remaining $900 that you can cash in on behalf of Leonard Lopate at large, help us meet our fund drive goals, and help ensure that this show will be here for a long time to come. You know, Leonard, I think that really uh, you are doing the... Majority of my work for me here this week, as far as making the case for why this show is different and why is it important. Yesterday, we were talking about the tr- extremely important issue of child poverty, a very underreported subject, particularly considering the severity and the problem of the problem worldwide, but especially uh, right here in New York and and throughout the U.S. Um, right here in our own neighborhood, so to speak. Today, we're talking about 10 great thinkers. I can't remember the last time I heard an interview deal with 10 anything. Uh, (laughs) That is a level of depth that most media outlets just aren't willing to take on.
0: Well, well, I think that when we decided uh, what the show should be like, uh, we uh, thought, well, there are certain things get taken care of again and again and again. Uh, there's no need for us to be talking about last night's debate, as as important as it is, uh, because it's been, you know, it's really been dissected again and again and again, breaking news on the cable news shows, on the regular television shows, on every radio talk show. So uh, we, it's very important. But there are other important things out there. And today we are discussing... Uh, n- not the simple issue of global warming, but how global warming denial fits in to the, the history of science, which I, I, is something that I'm sure most people have not really thought about. And uh, pro- a few of the people are gonna be talking about, I suspect uh, only uh, really, uh, I don't know how many of our listeners are familiar with jean Battista Vico or uh, Edmund Husserl. But we will get to those people as well and why they are significant.
2: You don't hear the name Hannah Arendt on CNN very often, for example. Well, But
0: Hannah Arendt is probably better known, although she's probably best known for her writings on uh, Adolf Eichmann, and we're not going to be talking about that.
2: What I find so interesting, too, and this certainly happens, or should I say has happened, uh, a lot in the history of the show in the year and a half we've been doing Leonard Lopate at large— uh, five days a week here on WBAI, the intersections with even last night's debate, with the news of the day, global warming is an issue that is a huge part of this this election, or at least it. You cannot dispute that whoever becomes president, whether it is Trump or a Democrat, their actions in the next four years will make or break our own response to global warming. So, in other words, it's it's just because we're not here saying, uh, you know, I think Klobuchar delivered a fatal blow to Pete last night, or vice versa, or whatever you want to hear uh, in that regard, does not mean that we're not, or you're not, talking about issues that touch all the things that we're thinking about in this current I'm moment. I'm looking
0: forward to a visit by Diane Ravitch talking about education policy and Pretty much all of the people involved in the the current political drama have uh, come into that conversation.
2: Right. This is uh, Diane Ravitch, uh, former assistant uh, secretary of education under the George H.W. Bush administration. Who's
0: changed her position on, on
2: – uh, public education, but we'll get to that. And she will be on the show on March 5th doing my uh, EP duties <laughs> here. But the only way we can keep bringing you these shows and, quite frankly, conquering topics that very few other outlets dare to even wade into is if you make that call right now, 516-620-3602, or go to the website give dot wbaiorg by the generosity of our regular listener, Ken Coglin, the next I, – I, as I mentioned earlier, I believe $100 is, has, has – so, uh, listeners have stepped up for 100 Maybe it's been even a little more than that since the last time I checked. Mm-hmm. If you make that contribution right now, the next $1,000 that we get, 900 whatever, you, will be doubled by Ken. And, uh, you know, if there are any other listeners who want to step up and and make a similar matching pledge, that would be great, too. But let's just finish what's on our plate here today and say, if you're planning on contributing $5, $10, $150, $1,000 is uh, the amount that will be matched. If one listener wanted to make a $900 donation, we would love you. Um, but... Not any less than our listeners who make a $5 donation, because we understand that everyone's financial situation is differently. As I said yesterday, when we were talking about poverty, we would never ask anyone in a situation like the ones we were describing yesterday to go, you know, to put themselves at risk by contributing to this station. But if you are comfortable and you aren't at risk of, say, losing your apartment, step up for someone else who can't make that contribution. And remember, it'll be doubled. It will be doubled again. I'm And and I want to let you get back to this fascinating contru- uh, con- conversation, uh, Leonard, uh, with Robert P. Crease, because I know that uh, th- this hour always goes way quicker than we think it's going to. Uh, so let me just give out the number one last time. That's 516-620-3602 or the website give to WBAI.org. That's give then the number two WBAI.org. One last time. 516 620 3602. The next uh, up to $1,000 of contributions that we get will be matched by listener Ken Coglin. Thank you to Ken and thank you to everyone con- that contributed. Please be sure to make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopez at Large. You're the reason we do this. Thank you.
0: And you're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York. My guest is Robert P. Kreese who's a professor in the Department of Philosophy at Stony Brook University. He has written, translated, edited over a dozen books on history and philosophy on science and is the co-editor-in-chief of Physics in Perspective. He writes a monthly column, Critical Point, for Physics World magazine on the philosophy and history of science. And the book that we are discussing is his latest, The Workshop and the World. It is published by Norton. And why that title?
1: Well, there are – the workshop stands for the scientific uh, workshop that is – science is not done, you know, solo by by single people, but it's in networks, bureaucracies of people. And you
0: point out that one person influences another, so we go from an idea that's passed from uh, from Vico to uh, Saint-Simon to Comte, and we can go on and on and on but they're, they're all influenced by each other
1: that's true but by the workshop more specifically means that any given moment science is conducted in a huge network of people just let's let's uh, think about um, uh, glacier studying glaciers as we, we opened with I mean if you st- studying glaciers is not uh, something that a, a single discipline does you need physicists chemists uh, um the pi- people who study uh, mechanics and hydrology. You, you even need uh, people who uh, people know how satellites work because they're, they're tracked uh, by, uh, by satellite nowadays. So, so any particular scientific finding is the product of a large bureaucracy. That's the workshop part. The world part is the, the world in which it sits. The world has created these workshops um, and uh, re- respond to the, the, their findings.
0: So let's talk a bit about how these various people contributed to the workshop. We've, t- we've talked about Galileo, Descartes, uh, and Bacon a bit, but what about Giambattista Vico? Uh, he's, what, late 17th, early 18th century, a name that probably is not familiar to a lot of people, but uh, you say he... Uh, uh, he was a really important figure.
1: Oh, absolutely! I mean, the first we talked in the first part of the program about uh, Galileo, uh, Bacon, and uh, Descartes. They were the first to argue for the authority of science. Here's what um, here's what it can do. Here's why it's important. Uh, why you need it to uh, to, to govern wisely. Uh, but then after that, I considered three people who put their fingers on certain reasons why people might suspect or reject science. And Vico pointed out that um, the as civilizations develop, they can take they can become overly reliant on science and technology, and forget how important it is to support. And uh, civilizations follow a certain path. Uh, Vico said a cyclical path, where where at some point science and technology emerges, which is good, but it can also um, unweave the social pa- fabric and you take it for granted and people become more individualistic. And the, um, one, of the, uh, one of the things I love that I mentioned in the book is I heard um, a uh, contact of mine said that he had heard a United States Senator, he wouldn't identify the senator, say um, o- oppose uh, money for more satellites because he said what do we need new weather satellites for when we have the weather channel?
0: <laughs> 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 and and that's, uh, that's a perfect example
1: of what, of what Vico was talking about as we begin to take all of the things that science and technology have delivered to us for granted and forget that uh, that requires a, a, a support.
0: He inaugurated what's come to be called the philosophy of history and criticized the expansion of modern rationalism but was uh, but wasn't he largely ignored during his lifetime? And y- you call him a tragic figure.
1: Yeah, he's a tragic figure because he was uh, largely uh, he was largely ignored, and he was only picked up a little. B- his ideas about the philosophy of history and about the um, the, the the way that people sit, take science and technology for granted uh, only later, a hundred or so years later, become. Uh, become influential. I mean, Hegel was, was influenced by him, doesn't mention him. Marx, I think, mentions him in a footnote or two, but, but the, he, he sort of laid the groundwork on, on which uh, Hegel and Marx's interpretation of history uh, were, were grounded.
0: Mary Shelley and August Comte wrote cautionary tales about divorcing science from the humanities. What were their concerns?
1: Well, the, they're interesting, too. Uh, uh, Sh- Shelley's obvious. I mean, she, she put her finger on... Uh she wrote
0: a book. Uh, I mean, Frankenstein, uh, can't you see that as an anti-scientific story?
1: Well, yeah. It shows the dangers of... Um, it, 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 it shows one of the reasons why people are, can be suspicious of science, which that science can create things that get out of control. Now especially in the modern age science as uh, science's products can uh, uh, can be threatening in a way that they they weren't in the uh, er- earlier and For example
0: Einstein warned about the development of the atomic
1: bomb. Atomic bomb is is certainly one um, the uh, you know even in um, Even in literature, Kurt Vonnegut's "What's the Kurt?" Is it Ice Mm -hmm. Nine, with that that can freeze all the all the water on the planet? (laughs) The uh, even global warming is is in a certain way uh, a an unforeseen byproduct of of science and and technology, meaning the you know development of of fossil fuel technology.
0: What about August Comte, uh, who's been credited with being the first philosopher of science in a modern sense? He uh, he created something called positivism. Mm -hmm. Uh, which was a little bit of uh, of everything. <laughs> Looks like a well, philosophy of mathematics, physics, chemistry, and biology. <laughs> Did well, you leave anything out? <laughs>
1: C- Kant is a is a peculiar figure. Um, he was, uh, you know, personality wise, he is one of the most unusual. Um, Philosopher, scientist, academics uh, ever, but hi- his story, and I only scratched the story of uh, uh, scratched his his story. But what he Kant recognized was that science isn't inherently authoritative. Why should you believe a scientist as opposed to 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 other people? And he he worried about the problem of getting science to be taken seriously, and the. Um, and w- one of the things he uh, a- a- and he had several several recommendations. One of which was he wanted to make science a religion. Basically, he was mm. his girlfriend or would be girlfriend. That's a that's another story. Uh, was a believing Catholic, and she acquainted him with lots of Catholic rituals. And he thought that if you science had those kind of rituals, people would be acclimized to to believing in its authority the way that they were to catholic authority well he
0: he created what's called positivism i said but that was rejected and along came neo positivism. how uh, why wasn't his positivism okay
1: well that, that's a different storyline i mean <laughs> okay. uh, co- we'll let's for for, for, let's for my book it. uh, it's that uh, he realized that that people need something extra in order to communities need something extra in order to accept the authority of science and one thing that he did was, a, as I said, he wanted to to uh, create certain kinds of rituals and symbolism that would uh, get people to accept science. And there's actually a chapel in Paris that I visited and, and I have a picture of it in the book where you know you go in and at, at, at the begi- at uh, when you first look it looks like an ordinary Catholic chapel but when you uh, look more carefully you see that the all the, s- the statues in the alcoves where there would normally be saints those were all scientists. There are people like Galileo and and uh, Archimedes and so forth. And there there's rituals. He had positivist weddings. There are songs. There were flags. There were a uh, lot of uh, symbolism. The there uh, this didn't work. It's a little bit crazy, but there was uh, there was wisdom in his wackiness, which is that uh, he, he 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 wanted to bring in kind of an affective dimension to the authority of science.
0: I probably haven't left enough time to talk about all of these people in any depth. Max Weber, who uh, Is often credited with being one of the founders of sociology, but he's, uh, you describe him as something of a Renaissance man.
1: Yeah, well, Weber also wrote specifically about the nature of authority, Um, but the, yeah, that's the, now you're talking about the third trio. Yeah. uh,
0: Weber, Kamal Atatürk, and uh, Edmund Husserl, and then, we, do, we can't ignore Hannah Arendt in this conversation, and we have about three minutes.
1: Three minutes, okay. Well, let me, I mean, there, there are wonderful stories about Kant, uh, uh, but but let me just mention why Arendt is important. Arendt lived through a time and period when spiritual authority had, had all but vanished. I mean, she grew up in Nazi Germany. She was imprisoned for uh, eight days or so. She was put in a... Uh, Uh, camp in France, Um, but her insight was that restoring authority is not something you can do immediately. There's no trick, there's no, you know, we all wish would write some article and people would say, oh yes, global warming uh, is real. Um, but she, she realized it's more complicated than that. What you have to do is to tell the story of how we got here in the first place. We got to the situation where people are denying science, not accidentally, but because of the way Western traditions developed. And unless you tell the story of how we got there, you have no hope of understanding how to get out of it.
0: I was surprised uh, to see Kamal out of Turkey, a revolutionary, the founder of the Republic of Turkey. What's his place in the workshop.
1: That is also an interesting uh, point that he was, uh, you know, the Ottoman Empire was once one of the strongest empires on the planet, and it began losing battles, and the uh, citizenry, the uh, leaders began to question, why are we losing, we're believers, we're Muslim believers, why are the heathens uh, beating us? And the, the answer seemed to be the possession of Western science and technology. And so the question was: Can you import Western science, uh, something developed by heathens, in and still have good Muslim citizens and good Ottoman uh, citizens as well too? And so the Ottoman Empire had a uh, long debate, uh, faced an existential threat, and had a long debate about the uh, whether uh, about the authority of science. And so uh, Ataturk is at the very end of that period, but it's it's that debate that we ought to be having in the West right now, because that's. Uh, uh, Ottoman Empire had it, and we need to have it as well too.
0: No, I, I'd never heard of Edmund Husserl before uh, I saw this book. Uh, a philosopher who established the school of phenomenology.
1: Yes, uh, phenomenology. His uh, the reason that that he's in the book is that he did he he also lived during. He he also was one of Arendt's teachers. By the way, uh, he lived in a period of. Um, of what he called crisis of science and technology where people were using uh, the, the uh, people were dazzled by science and technology and forgetting how it developed and, and its roots it for Husserl was sort of like you know science gives us a map of the world where people were beginning to think that the map is the real world rather than the world itself so he wrote a book called the crisis of, of European sciences and the uh, he, he, he put his finger on one of the causes of, of science denial
0: And. These are all fascinating characters, and you tell stories that um, even people who think that they know something about them probably will be surprised by. So I appreciate that. <laughs> Thank you. And uh, the book that we've been discussing is The Workshop and the World, What Ten Thinkers Can Teach Us About Science and Authority. My great thanks to Robert P. Creese for being our guest today. The Thank book, you, Leonard. book, by the way, published by Norton. Thank you, Leonard. And that brings us to the end of today's show. Uh, If you're new to our program and you like what you've been hearing, you can access past shows streaming on demand at... WBAI.org, also available as an iTunes podcast, and don't forget to check out Leonard Lopate at Large on Facebook and Twitter, also our website LeonardLopateAtLarge.com where you can find links to all of our past shows, and we invite your comments on all of those sites. We are preempted tomorrow for special WBAI Fund Drive programming, but we hope you'll join us on Monday when G. Wayne Miller will discuss his latest book, Kid Number 1, Alan Hassenfeld, and Hasbro. And we'll see you then. And uh, as we've been informing you, we're in the third week of WBAI's Winter uh, Pledge Drive. We hope that you will support this show. And uh, you can do that by going to give2wbai.org. To That's give, the number 2, wbai.org. Or, or by calling 516-620-3602. And everyone who makes a contribution for any amount will get that amount, at least up to $1,000, matched by one of our favorite listeners, Ken Coglin. So uh, we hope that you will help us uh, survive and thrive. Uh, BAI has had its uh, money problems uh, over the years. It, it has led to a serious crisis recently. We want to avoid that kind of crisis in the near future. So please, we don't take foundation money. We don't run ads. We rely on you, our listeners, totally. Please call us 516-620-3602 or go to to give2wbai.org and make your donation in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large. And thanks.